This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, so um, so we're getting we're going into Elul. So I want to tell you, yesterday Baruch Hashem, I was invited to a uh, to a bris. Actually, it was an interesting day yesterday. I had a bris in the morning, a wedding in the evening, and at night I had a vart. So it was like very nice. Baruch Hashem, all simchas, free simchas, chazaka. So anyway, so this bris was early in the morning, and I went to this bris. A young man who came from Russia, who, um, when he came was not religious, didn't know anything. Today he's got a nice beard, he's, he gives shiurim, he's a big tzaddik, very big tzaddik. And so he called me a whole week, you must come to the bris. So I came to the bris, and um, at the meal he spoke, and he asked me to speak. So first I want to tell you his speech, then I'll tell you my speech. So he got up, and the first thing he said is, Hayal Hashem Kitaib. He wants to thank Hashem, that Baruch Hashem, he made a bris. His son, he named after the Chavetz Chaim, his name is Yisrael Meir Ben Shmuel. Yisrael Meir was the name of the Chavetz Chaim, so he named his son after the Chavetz Chaim. I actually gave the name. Um, so he gets up and he says the following story. He says, there was once a king, and the king went with a bunch of soldiers, and they went for a ride into the forest. I don't know, either hunt, not hunting, they just, they went to hang out in the forest. As they were going towards the forest, they were attacked by a pack of wolves. And the horses, of course, when they get attacked by wolves, they ran wild. And they couldn't control them. And all these soldiers and all these horses went flying all over the place. And Nebuch, the poor king, was stuck by himself. And all these wolves were surrounding the king and his horses. Along comes the shepherd, who happened to have been in this patch of grass. Along comes the shepherd... And he knows how to deal with wolves, because shepherds always deal with wolves. And he has these German she- he has these dogs, and they chase the wolves away. And they save the king. So the king calls over the shepherd, and he says, I, I don't know how to repay you. How do I repay you? It's unbelievable what you did for me. Um, come back to the palace. He brings him back to the palace. And he gives him money and a new clothing. And he gives him a place, a high place in the government. And this... Shepherd becomes very wealthy and the king really loves this guy and they become very close friends. But all the other ministers become very jealous. So they want to come up with a plan somehow to get the king not to like the shepherd. So they decided they're going to watch the shepherd, see what he does. Now every day at nine o'clock, the shepherd would go into a room and he would lock the door and nobody in the palace had the key, we have, Ruth, we have up here, we have empty seats up here. Oh, okay. Fine, okay, no problem. So, um, so, oh, the Revitson will put up in the front. We're saving you a front seat. We're saving you a front seat. Front row. Here, bring her, bring her up. The expensive seats. Every year I start yeshiva, so on uh, the first day of school, so the kids sit where they want to sit, right? I don't tell them where to sit. They all walk in. Everybody everybody gets themselves a seat. So automatically the second day I take all the guys from the back, because if they're sitting on the back voluntarily, you know that they're troublemakers. And I put them in front, and all the guys in the front I put in the back. Anyway, so... So, so, the, so the, they want to, they want to try to find something to hurt this shepherd to separate him from the king. So they see that every single morning, everything else is normal the whole day. But every single morning, nine o'clock, 
He goes into this room and he locks the door. And nobody has the key. And they're thinking, oh, he must be planning some kind of rebellion. Why wouldn't he let anybody in? So they go back to the king. And they tell the king, you know, you, you like him. You think he likes you. He's planning a rebellion. And every morning he goes into this room. I don't think even you have the key to this room. And nobody can get into the room. King says, okay, I'll find out what's going on. He calls the guy into the room, his pal- into his throne room. And he says, you know, um, I have reports that you might be planning a rebellion. Shepherd looks at the king and says, rebellion? What are you talking about? I saved your life. Why would you think I'm planning a rebellion? Well, we heard that there's this room at 9 o'clock every single day. You go into this room, you lock yourself in, and nobody can get in. So we're a little bit worried that you got some kind of plan. He says, I would love to invite the king to see my room. I'll take you right now. So you shouldn't think I cleaned it out. King says, fine. So he takes him and he opens up, he brings the king to the room and he opens up the door to the room and the room is empty. Except on one wall is the shepherd's hanging is the shepherd's old clothing. What he used to wear, skins and clothing, whatever it is. And the king says, my, what's, what's this? And he says, every day, I live in a palace now. Every day, I want to remember what my life used to be. Because if you don't remember what it used to be, then you don't appreciate what it is. It was very interesting. I had a girl today in my office um, who, because of certain behaviors, was sent to this camp out in Nevada somewhere and um, like a boot camp and she said to me Rabbi Walton you don't understand she said if they didn't teach me anything they taught me one thing and that is to appreciate she said I was there for 14 weeks I did not sit on a toilet she said they don't have bathrooms they have outhouses they don't I didn't sleep on a mattress she said I slept in a, in a you know sleeping bag she says you didn't have running water. You had to wash your hair in a river. She said, you don't understand. I didn't have a phone. I didn't have any communications. She said, just coming back to civilization? If they wouldn't have taught me anything else? She said, I don't really want to get graphic. She says, the first bathroom in the airport. I ran into that bathroom, Rabbi. You don't understand. I don't want to even repeat what she said. Toilet paper and everything else was like, like, was like gold. So, so what she appreciates, right? So this, this shepherd, this shepherd said, before I start my day, right? And I'm, I'm in a palace surrounded by all this gold and glitz. I want to remember where I come from. Again, you can't appreciate where you are until you look back to where you, where you came from. You can't appreciate that you walked, that once upon a time you crawled. And once upon a time you laid on your back in a little crib and you couldn't do anything, right? And you didn't have teeth and you couldn't chew a piece of steak. Now you sit down at a restaurant, nice piece of steak, right? You didn't have teeth, right? So, I, I mean, you know, we have to appreciate our teeth. That's for sure. I can tell you that much, right? I can tell you that. You lose your teeth and they pull your teeth and all that. And you got to get implants and, whoa, my gosh, shots and needles and drilling. And, my God, it's like like building a robot back, putting back together again. So people have teeth. Ah, we have to appreciate everything. That's what this guy was into. So he said, a half an hour every day, from 9 to 9.30, I go into this room, and I sit in front of my jacket, and I sit and remember that I was a lowly, nothing shepherd. 
and then I come out and I appreciate everything I have in the palace. Otherwise, I wouldn't appreciate your palace. I wouldn't appreciate anything that I have. Because if I, if I forget where I came from, I wouldn't appreciate anything. So the king was like, wow. You know, he was in amazement. Of course, he did, he was very happy and not only they didn't, they didn't get further from each other, but they got closer to each other. So this young man, Shmuel, he got up yesterday in the morning and he said he came from a non-from place and his wife and they both became from and the first Shabbat and he was speaking about his appreciation that today he has a bris and he named his child after the Chavetz Chaim. He said it wasn't even in his furthest dreams in the world. And I'm sitting there, right? And I'm listening to this whole thing and I'm thinking to myself, I got a lot of things that need to hang up in my room to remember where I came from. A lot of stuff, but I don't think I'm going to be hanging them up in my room, right? But I, I, hello, whoever dreamt, whoever dreamt that I would give a shear, whoever dreamt that I'd be a Rebbe, wasn't the kind of kid I was, right? So, but I, you know, until I heard him say that, I didn't really think back to like, because things happened gradually. I started teaching half a day, this, that, and the other thing. I didn't appreciate where I was once upon a time as a teenager, where I was in life. And, 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 and I have to tell you that I was sitting there and I was like, very emotional because, next Friday, my, my safer's out. My two Swarm are out. And that's, they're gonna, they're gonna be, they're gonna be in Swarm stores. Now, I saw the cover and it says Wallerstein on it. I'm like, hello? I have to tell you something though, that you all know the story of me in first grade and, um, with the, with the, uh, with the homework that ate the, uh, hamster, right? And, what? You don't know my story in first grade? All right, it's a very important story. But I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why it's an important story. So I'm this little guy in first grade, and um, we had a very mean teacher. At least as a first grader, in my appreciation of what she was, she didn't put it this way. She didn't come to school in a car. She parked her broom. Okay, so it's this very mean. We thought she was a witch. We thought she. We thought we thought that she flew in every day, and she was. She was so unemotional that that she would call us not by our first name. My my name as a kid was Stevie. My name was Stevie Wallstein. She would never call me as Stevie Wallstein. She would call us Mister. So I'm a first grader, and you call me Mister Wallstein. So you know already that there's no emotional, no emotional connection over here, right? And she was very very strict. All right, and I, I'm thinking maybe because you're first grader, so to first grader she's strict, but I think she was strict anyway, even if I wasn't a first grader. Okay, anyway, so my name's Wallstein, as you all know, some of you know, which is, ends with a, which starts with a W, which is good and bad. The bad part in yeshiva, if you're a boy, is that, especially in the first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, every time you finish a parsha, you have a seum. Right, so it's like every three, four weeks, Everybody, everyone has to bring in something. Bag of potato chips, bag of popcorn. Each kid has to bring in something. And you make a seum, right? Then you finish something. By the time they get to W, the Rebbe is always, oh, sorry, we're out of soda, potato chips. We only had enough for 20, but you're number 23. Z? Well, they're worth coming to school altogether. If your name started with a Z, like Zichemin, forget it. But even Wallerstein, they ran out of everything by the time they got to my name. But the good part of it was that the homework, when they're collecting the homework and everything, you can see what works and what doesn't work. This kid got kicked out, this kid's not accepted. But you're W, you can watch all the A's and the B's and the C's and the right? So there's always, and everything in this world, since the A's Hadas, has good and bad in it. Everything has good and bad in it. So W was good and W was bad, it had both. So anyway, I had a very close friend, his name was Yankel Kaufman, 
two of us got into a lot of trouble. In third grade, we got kicked out of school. We ran away. But this is first grade. So we're sitting in first grade, and she she gave us, it's interesting, I, this is a long time ago. I'm not even going to tell you how long ago, but we're talking more than 50 years ago, this story, okay? Close to 50 years ago. So the whole, I remember, it's 50 years, okay? I remember the homework. I remember the homework. The homework was spelling homework. And you had to take your paper and fold it into three, like this. And then on each, when you opened it, you had these, this, this, and that, right? And you had five words, five words, and five words. I remember. And you weren't allowed to write it in pen. You had to write it in pencil. Because you had to correct it. It's crazy. 50 years, okay? So, <laughs> trauma lasts 50 years. Trust me. So anyway, so, so, this, all the goody-goodies. And then she gets to Kaufman. And she says, please, Mr. Kaufman, please bring up your homework. So he comes up to the front desk, empty-handed. And she says to him, Mr. Kaufman, where's your homework? And he says, ah, he's a little kid, we're little teeny kids. Ah, I promise I did my homework, she says. So Mr. Kaufman, if you did your homework, please bring it up. Where is it? And he goes, I have I have a, I have a, I have a, I have a cat and, and I have my homework on my desk and my cat ate my homework. He starts crying. Okay. I'm sitting back there like, yeah, right. Right? So she, she looks at him and says, this is my best friend in the world. She looks at him and says, Mr. Kaufman, that is absolutely ridiculous. Now, first graders think that that's, we didn't know what the word ridiculous. We never heard that word. So we're all like, yay. Ridiculous must be a compliment. Like, you know, she accepted it. Whoever heard ridiculous? We didn't have vocabulary yet. Okay. Actually, I didn't know what ridiculous meant in seventh grade, but okay, depending on what school you went to. So anyway, so she says, that's ridiculous. I am teaching for over 20 years. I have heard that ridiculous story. It is unacceptable, which we also didn't know what that meant. And therefore, tomorrow, Mr. Kaufman, I want this homework done on both sides of your paper, and I want it signed by both by both your parents. I'm sitting there, ay, 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 ay. I don't got my homework either, right? Now, I realized I didn't want to get double homework within those days, and my parents are going to sign it. I never told them that I had homework. I'm dead. I'm done. Okay, so, so what did I do? What did I do? I'm thinking in my head, I got to come up with a different story. That That's good about being Wallenstein. That story didn't work. So, she calls me up and she says, Wallenstein, where's your homework? And I said, I promise. This is a true story. First grader. I promise. I really did my homework. Well then, Mr. Wallenstein, please produce it. <laughs> okay. Um, if you have your homework, let me see it. Now Hashem, I love Hashem. I've always loved Hashem. It started pretty much in first grade that I love Hashem. Because what I wanted to say was not what came out of my mouth. Okay? And what came out of my mouth was the following. I promise I did my homework. I, put, I, 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 I have a hamster. I didn't have a hamster. I never had a hamster. But we had a hamster in the class. That's where the word, I remember, that's where the hamster, we had the little guy that spins around, right? The little rat that spins around, little mouse. So we had a hamster. So for some reason, I focused on hamster. So I said, you're not going to believe this, but I have a hamster. And last night, my homework ate my hamster. <laughs> now, that wasn't the plan. The plan was that my hamster ate my homework, being that the cat didn't work. But what came out of my mouth, but you have to hear what kind of kid I was. What came out of my mouth was that the homework ate the hamster. 
So she said, I haven't been a very cute little guy. She said, you mean to say your hamster ate your homework, correct, Mr. Wallerstein? I'm like, now once I'm in it, I'm in it. You have to know me. And I'm like, no. My homework ate my hamster. I'm going to fight her on this. And then I said the most ridiculous thing you can imagine. I said, and I can prove it. She said, you can prove it? I'm like, yes, I have a note from my father. She said, you have a note from your father that your, I can't believe you didn't hear the story, that you have a note from your father that your homework ate your hamster? And I'm like, yes, because I'm not backing down. She says, let me see the note. So I had a note in my pocket. I didn't make it up. She's probably thinking, this kid is dysfunctional. His father must be really dysfunctional. If he wrote such a note, that man, I mean, we have to report these people, right? Okay. So I take out the note. I think I was very brilliant, by the way. I take out the note, and it's a late note. And she says, please excuse Stevie Wallerstein for coming late to school today. She says, Mr. Wallerstein, this says nothing about a hamster or homework. This is a late note. I said, that's right. Do you know why I was late? She says, no, but I think you're going to tell me. I'm like, I was late because we had to make a levaya for the hamster. That's why my, my father wrote, you know, it's a true story. Now, why am I telling you this story? Because this lady, as mean as she was, was an Avia. Was a prophetess. First, a, a prophetess, an Avia. First of all, she said the following. She said, she looked at me and it was the first time we ever, we didn't think she, we used to argue if she had teeth. So she never ever smiled. Ever, ever, ever. Right? So, it was the first time she really cracked a little smile at me. And she said, I've never heard anything like this in my life. So she said, but you have a very vivid imagination. You have an unbelievable imagination. And I don't, as a creative first grade teacher, I don't want to squelch that imagination. So this one time, Mr. Wallerstein, I'm going to excuse you from your homework. I'm like, really? And as I walked by, and I asked Mechila already a hundred times, as I walked by Yankala Kaufman, I gave him such a kick. And I said, stupid hamster, not a cat. It's a hamster. I asked him Mechila. I asked him Mechila. Anyway, she said to me, I have to say this. She said to me, she said, before I walked away from her desk, she said about the imagination, she said, you know, I bet one day you'll write a book. Really? She said that to me. So the reason she said it because I was so sugar, she wasn't she wasn't talking about a lesson in gratitude. It's not what she was talking about, but she figured I'm gonna write probably, you know, the Lord of the Rings or something on that on that level. If 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 papers are eating hamsters, you know, whatever it is. So so she she said it. She said it. That was fifty years ago. She said, You're gonna write a book one day. She wasn't the only person. I, I used to write all kinds of crazy compositions and stuff. I was told that a few times, but they thought English books and weird. I, wore, I wrote all kinds of stories about these three kids that were kidnapped and end up on an island and natives and ah, all kinds of weird stuff I was writing. But so, so anyway, Baruch Hashem, why am I telling you this? Because I'm thinking about it as I'm sitting by this bris and I'm saying to myself, a safer on a karas hatov? You? A 
Sefer, you, do you know what a Sefer and Akar can do to this world? I mean, Chavetz Chaim wrote on Lashon Hara, not Chavetz Chaim. What happened to Lashon Hara? That nobody talks Lashon Hara. Hakar Satov is the game changer. I have eight Haskamas from Big Tzadikim on this Sefer. And every rabbi, yes, he wrote one. Right. So every rabbi I went to and I said, could you give me a Haskama, a letter about, you know, that you're, everyone said, what is this on? I said, a lesson a day in Akar Satov. They're like, oh my gosh, we need this. This is so important. I'll fax it to you. I'll email it to you. You'll have it tomorrow. So Baruch Hashem, for whatever reason, I don't know why Hashem gave me this, this schus. And to, I saw the cover and just to see my name on the cover of a Sefer, which a Sefer is forever, uh, I got to go into my room every morning for half an hour and take a look at my, my sneakers and all the other stuff, all the other things. And cause it, it was, it's a dream. It's a total dream. But even more than that dream, is the second book. And the second book, which is called the Sefer Zichronos, which is coming out the same day, which is a diary, but it's not a diary. Believe me, it's not a diary when you see it. I was fascinated always, and I've spoken in many shiurim, about Achashverosh's book. That he couldn't sleep that night, Perek Vav, the beginning of the Yeshua of Klai Yisrael on Purim. He couldn't sleep. So we asked him to open up the Sefer Zichronos. And he said, is there anyone in this book that I owe a thank you that I didn't give? And they said, Mordechai, what did he do? He saved your life. What did I do for him? Nothing. And that led to Haman being, parading Mordechai around. And it was the end. When Haman came back and told his wife and everybody that this is what happened, they said it's over. So it says that whole, that Sefer Zichronos. And I always dreamt of that king's book. And it bothered me that Achashverosh has this book. Where every single time someone did him something good, he wrote it down. And Zechariah Wallstein, I don't have no book like that. Come from Shoshana, I don't remember anyone, anyone that did anything. I called my mother, I, I called my relatives. I don't thank anybody. A whole year, people did things for me. I said thank you at that moment, then I forgot about it. And here, there's Akash It's big, it's bigger, it's bigger. I, I tried, I don't know if I came across well in the book about this, but, but it's bigger than a Sefer Zechronos. If you only had a book, if he only, if he only had a book where he wrote in a diary, right? This guy did this to me good. That would have been nice, but it wouldn't have saved us. Anyone who did him a good, he repaid. So that means that everyone in your book that you write down, did you good? He repaid. He said, is there anyone in my book that is written that I didn't repay? So it's a much higher level. Not just write, oh, Connie did me a favor, but I didn't do anything back for her. That's the level that Hashemus was on. And it bothered me that me and everyone else, we don't have such books. Because we don't have a book to open and look at what mom did for me and what my teacher did for me and my husband and my wife and, and, and Hashem and all that. We don't have such a book. So we come to Rosh Hashanah and we ask, give me a good year, Shana Tovah, Shana We ask, we ask. We don't. What about all the things that happened good? So in the Rosh Hashanah prayer and in the Yom Kippur prayer, the scariest prayer of them all is Unasana Tokev. Unasana Tokev, who's going to live, who's going to die, who's going to drown, who's going to have money, who's going to lose their money, right? We all know that it was written. He, he, he said, I have to think about if I'm going to bow down for three days. And because he said that, they cut his tongue out, they cut his fingers off, they cut his, his legs off, they put it into a stretcher, and he died saying Unasana, he died saying Unasana Tokev on Yom Kippur, on Rosh Hashanah, by, by that, by Musaf, he died and he came in a dream and said, you need to write down that safe. So if you read on the Sanatokev, this is a, a machzer on Yom Kippur, okay? If you read on the Sanatokev, this is what it says on the Sanatokev. 
Hashem writes and he seals the safe and he counts. And he remembers everything that was forgotten. And Hashem also has such a book, such a diary. And he opens up his book of memories. Now listen to what, you don't even know what you say every Yom Kippur Shoshanah. And the book itself reads what's written. Not Hashem reads what's written. The book is talking. How does the book know what happened that year? Because who wrote the book in Shemayim that they're opening? You did. Every night, when a person goes to sleep, their soul goes up to Shemayim and writes in a book of Zichronos everything that you did that day. So when you open up the book and Yom Kippur, when they open up with Yom Kippur, your Malach says, what do you mean? She didn't do that. She, went, she didn't do that. And Hashem's like, I didn't write this. She wrote it. I didn't write anything in this book. You wrote it. So don't come to me on Yom Kippur and tell me that it didn't happen. You wrote this every night when you went to sleep. Your Neshama writes this. So in Shemayim, there's a book called the Sefer Zichronos. So I said to myself, if every one of us, starting Rosh Hashanah, starting, Rosh Hashanah, starting Tishrei, every day can write two things, three things, about something good that someone did for me, something good that Hashem did for me, or any relative, or anybody. Two, three things in a book, every single night. You're going to come next year, Rosh Hashanah, you're going to have your own Sefer Zichronos. It's going to be full of things, that, and not only that, you can sit the week before Rosh Hashanah and look at, write down phone numbers, you know, you remember six months ago, I needed a ride? I didn't forget it. It's in my book. Thank you. It's a game changer. It's a, it's a, it's a game changer between us and God, with us and our friends, with us, and, uh, husbands and wives, kids. Imagine in your house, a husband and a wife, and five kids, let's say, seven safers of chronos. Everybody's writing their own thing. And it's not a diary. Your mother's going to look to see what you're writing because you intend to go run away or something. No, no one's going to look at this diary. It's a private diary because it's only about what people did for you as a favor. My mother doesn't need to know what people did for me. I do. So it's not like someone's going to read this diary. Only you're going to read this diary. And I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be royal. Not a diary you're going to go into a, a, a store to buy. I wanted it to be royal because my picture in this imaginative head that thought about a, a homework eating a hamster, so there's an imagination in here, right, was I want this book to look like Akashverosh's book. Kingly with crowns, with, you know, bound in a certain way, with the pages being parchment, should look like. So um, I went out to find somebody that could do something like this for me. The most famous manuscript writer in the Jewish world is Yona Weinrib. Nobody can write like Yona Weinrib. So I called up Yona Weinrib and I'm like, Yona, I got a project. Think you can do it? He goes, What? I'm like, the king's Sefer Zechronos. He says, what are you talking about? I said, the king's Sefer Zechronos. And I told him what I want. And I saw it. It's not, it's, it's being printed right now, but I saw it. Akash eat your heart out. <laughs> you don't have such a book. And in front of the book is, is Kriyashmala Mita, translated in English, and beautiful. And not only that, the last minute how Hashem runs the world, 
there's, a, there's an organization, I don't know how many of you say this, but they came out with this like eight things that you say, thank you, toda. Toda, 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 eight different things that you say every morning, thank you to Hashem. We put that in the book. So you got Kriyashma, you got to say for Toda. Is that the gratitude from? That's the gratitude. That's the gratitude that's the, that's the gratitude, yeah. That's, well, no, the gratitude book is the other book. This is the safest of cards. This is a private. Anyway, so these two things, I'm sitting there by this guy's bris, and he's getting up and telling this story, and I'm thinking to myself, a safer Zichronos that every girl and every man can go to Hashem on Rosh Hashanah, sit down and say, I know you have a safer Zichronos up there that I wrote. I don't really want you to open that one. I want you to open this one. Because in this one, I only wrote good. And that one, I don't know what my, my, my Neshama wrote, but this is the one that I want you to look at. I have appreciation for everything that everybody did for me. I think that it's a Mashiach bringer. It's a, it's, it's a change in, in Gantz Kleistral. I think our judgment, you know, will be, will be different. You don't have to buy, you don't have to buy my, my savings of Kronos. You can write it in your own diary, whatever it is. But it's very, very, very important. So it just triggered that. I was sitting there and I'm listening to this guy about the shepherd and I'm thinking to myself, Wallstein, did you ever dream that you'll have a safer and a savings of Kronos and, right? Never. So, you got it. No, it's not about me. Everyone in this room, you need to know that you you can do anything that you that, that you can do anything. Trust me, you all don't know me as a teenager. There's not one girl in this room that would have put up a penny that Rabbi Wolfson would ever write a safer. I promise you. To write a safer, give a speech. That guy? No way. So everyone has to know in themselves. Same thing. We we don't believe in ourselves, right? Just do the right thing and be connected to Hashem and. And things happen. Things happen. Okay. So anyway, that was like a big thing for me. I don't know yet which room I'm going to pick in the house. And I don't know what I'm going to hang up in the room yet. But I'm definitely not letting anyone into that room. That's for sure. Okay. So that, that happened by the bris. Now I'll tell you what I said by the bris. So I said the following. So there's a, there's a famous question and a really very beautiful answer. So I said the following. I said a bris, right? It's a big thing. A bris mila and a moyo. And... And everyone here knows a bris is a circumcision where an extra arla is cut off the baby. And that's the bris. So the famous question is, if it's extra, why, why, and you have to cut it off and it's so painful, why don't you just not create us with it? Hashem doesn't create anything extra. We're still trying to figure out why an appendix is there, right? But, but Hashem doesn't, Hashem doesn't create anything extra. So he created something extra to cut it off. Don't, when you created man, don't cut it. What, 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 why did he do that? It's a very unbelievable lesson. And the lesson is that a man, men are very different than women. A woman doesn't need a bris. Because a woman is not, a woman is a protector. She's a protector. She, she's made out of etzem. She's made out of the bone of, of Adam. She's not made out of, we're made out of dust. A woman's made out of etzem, Sinai. So a woman doesn't need more than one husband. Why can't, according to Jewish law, like the women are like, oh, it's not fair. You guys can marry five girls, five women. We can only marry one husband. And the answer is that a woman doesn't want more than one husband. She wants one good husband, but she, she's not, she's not a searcher. She, she's happy with what she has and she protects what she has, like a bear. You know, don't mess with my husband, don't mess with my kids, and don't mess with my stuff, right? They want one house with one car. It's an interesting thing. They did a whole thing about women and cars and that women, much more men lease cars than women. Women buy cars. Men lease cars. Why? Because men 
after two years, I'm bored. Right? I'm looking for that one-year lease. When it doesn't smell new, I don't want it no more. Right? So we're looking this car, this car. Women are like, give me a car that works. I'll keep it for 10 years. Why do I need another one? Like, why are you getting me another one? I'm happy with this one. I just got used to this one. So, so that, that's when they don't need five husbands, and they don't need five cars, and they don't need five houses. They don't want five houses. He's like, let's get one in Miami. Let's go in L.A. How about one in uh, West Hampton, one in here, and one in Israel? And she's like, Shafula, we go to Miami tw- two, to, two weeks a year. Why are we buying a house? I don't know. I think we should have a house there. Right? Guys, we are always, we're hunters. We're hunters. We, we want more money. We want more houses. We want everything we have. We want more because we're made from dust. Dust flies from one place to the next. Etsem is, fa- is stationary. So a woman is, a woman is created very much, very, 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 very stationary. She's not, you know, she's not looking to gather and gather and gather. Men, we're very different. We are always looking to gather. So therefore, Hashem wants to teach men in their physical body, which is also in their spiritual body because they mirror each other, he wants to teach us a lesson from when we were a very, very, very little little kid. And that is that taking something away brings to shalom, makes something full. Just the opposite. The rest of the world thinks fulfillment, more money, more houses, more clothing, more wives, Right? More. The world believes in fulfillment is more. Judaism, fulfillment is less. Is to give away. Sadaka, right? Don't put it in your bank. Give it to somebody else. Your time, don't use it only for yourself. Give it to someone else. So the man has to learn that to remove something from you is really the fulfillment of who you are. Not to add. Woman doesn't need that. She knows that. She's not looking to add. She's looking to protect what she has. That's what she wants. She doesn't need more. And I, I can't tell you how many women I've heard tell their husbands, give, us, give me some more time in Shalom Bayes. Give the kids some more time. And he's like, I can't. I'm trying to make a lot of money. And she's like, we have enough money and our children and our grandchildren to live. I don't need you to make more money. And he looks at her strange like, why wouldn't you? You're my wife. Why wouldn't you want us to make another 10 million? Because she doesn't want that. She doesn't want that. She's not a gatherer. She understands that having him enough, protect it. So the bris milah at eight days is for a man specifically to teach him that removing something, that is the fulfillment of a Jewish person, of a Jewish child. That's a very, very important lesson. And a lot of people don't get that lesson, but that's, that's, the, that's the reason. Otherwise, what do you need it for? It's specifically to teach us, that, and sometimes it's painful to give away money and tzedakah and chesed and time. Sometimes it's painful. That's the bris. That's the bris. That's the, the connection. That's the bris between us and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The bris between us and HaKadosh Baruch Hu is to give away. Not to add. Not to add and add, but to give away. So that's, a, so that's what I got up and I said. Then I also said one other thing. In this week's parsha, parsha's Re'ei, so it says the following, which is so true. It says the following. Re'ei anoichi noichi nukhnechem ayam brachol Hashem says, Re'ei anoichi See that I, today, am giving you a blessing and a curse. Es ha-bracha. The blessing is, The bracha is, if you're going to listen to the mitzvahs of Hashem, your God, that I'm commanding you today, and then the prophet doesn't tell us what the blessing is. It just tells us, the bracha will be, if you listen to the mitzvahs of Hashem, 
that I'm commanding you today, and then the next pasuk is v'haklala, and the curse is v'loisishmo mitzvah Hashem alekechem. If you're not going to listen to the mitzvahs, v'satim and aderech, you're going to go off the derech. Hashem aninech mitzvahs kama yom alech zachve elukim achem ashaloyedatem. That you're going to go in faith, and you're going to go follow other gods that you don't know, and it doesn't tell us to curse. So the first pasuk says, and the bracha is if you listen to Hashem, it doesn't tell us the bracha. And the second one says, and the curse is if you're not going to listen to Hashem, you're going to go off the derech, and it doesn't tell us the klala, and then it goes into uh, you're going to go to, uh, the bracha is going to be on high grizim, and the klal is going to be on high evil. So the question is, I don't understand. Pati tells us the bracha, if you're going to listen to Hashem, it doesn't tell us the bracha, it doesn't tell us the klal. So Chazal say, that's the lesson of the pasik. The pasik is telling us something else. As ha bracha, the bracha is, Ashetishma Hashem The bless, not if you listen to Hashem, you will be blessed. But the, ble- the blessing is, if you listen to Hashem, that is the blessing. A person who's close to Hashem and keeps the mitzvahs, he is blessed. He lives a good life. Haklala, the curse. What's the curse? Imlaitish. Well, not I'm going to punish you and you're going to go get him and you're going to burn. No. The klala is a person who doesn't do the mitzvahs of Hashem. That is the curse. And I told my boys last night in my shir, I said there's a shul called Shemesh Shabbos on 53rd and 13th Avenue in Borough Park. Every day at 11 o'clock, there's a shear there for an hour. Who goes to that shear? Everyone, we're all working, right? It's a shear for people who are, um, who are not working, right? Who are retired. You have to sit out in that corner one morning at 11 o'clock after the summer. The shul is full. Who goes to the shear? The oldest people you ever saw in your life. They're coming wheelchairs with attendants on oxygen. Seriously, they wheel them in there. They wheel them in there, and the other people are walking like with sticks. It's like unbelievable. The whole shul. These are people who are retired and very. I'm talking about 75 to 100. There's still some Holocaust survivors. You walk into that shul. I do this sometimes. Just you walk into that shul. You have a hundred of these old men. Mamish get fetched. Uh, Old men with the, you know, the, 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 there are a lot of non-Jews sitting there because they're all the attendants, right? And they're listening to the shir. It's just interesting, right? And you just have to look at them. They're sitting there and they're learning and they're arguing with the rabbi and they're asking questions. And, and I'm looking at like 25-year-old guys. They're 90 years old and I'm looking at 25. For that hour, there's no pain. For that hour, there's no fetching. No fetching. Nothing. Just learning. The bracha, the bracha is not if you listen to Hashem, you're going to get a bracha. The bracha is if you listen to Hashem. That is the bracha. I'll tell you a story about Rav Shadron. Rav Shadron was a Magid, a very famous Magid um, in Eretz Yisrael. Very, very, very famous Sadiq. And I read this in his book. And he writes a story that, I don't know where this place is, right outside Yushalayim, there's a nursing home. It has religious people and not religious people in it. And there was a very big tzaddik, Ramatala, who was like 95 years old. Nobody could take, he couldn't take, he was in this nursing home. And Rav Shadron knew him and wanted to get a bracha from him. He was over 90, wanted to get a bracha from him. And he used to visit him every once in a while. One day, maybe it was a Friday, he, he comes to visit Ramatala. And he asks him where he is and they say, he's in the shul, in the base manager's. Okay. He walks into the base magic studio, and I have the tape also where he says the story. Where he says it in Yiddish. He walks in, and this is a 95-year-old man. He's sitting by the table, and he's singing the Gemara. 
If you ever heard guys learning, right? And Rabbi said, and he's singing, the 95-year-old guy, and he's singing it. He said, he didn't have the heart to disturb him and tell him that I'm here. So we went outside. He said, when is lunch? He said, in a half an hour. Okay, I'll stay for half an hour. I'm not going to break. He's enjoying himself. He's learning. I'm not going to break that up. Fine. Okay. He goes outside on the porch, you know, where they sit out in front. He figures he'll sit there for half an hour. He had a safer. He takes out a safer, and he starts learning. And there's five, you have to hear him on the tape. It's very funny how he says it, but these five old people, not that Tim, not, not religious. They're all sitting there, two in a wheelchair, four guys and a woman. And they're sitting there on this porch. Rashad Run's sitting there trying to learn. And all of a sudden, one of the men said, 63! And Rashad Run looks up and goes, and the lady said, D out the bucket, you old Michigana. 63, it's already 66! And the other one says, you old foolish woman, 65! And the five of them start fighting with each other, each one with their number, and he's just, he's just sitting there, and all of a sudden it gets quiet, and he start, picks up his safer, he starts learning again, five minutes later, 67! The lady goes, well, I told you! And they're fighting again. This goes on every five minutes. They get quiet, and they're fighting again. They're mamish killing each other. Finally, he, 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 he couldn't anymore. So he turns to the man. He was in a wheelchair next to him. He says, uh, in Ivrit, he says, maybe you could tell me what this number, that you're, you're so angry at each other, you mamish. Like they weren't talking. They would turn around from each other, call each other names, cursing each other. He's like, what's going on here? And the old man says, what's going on here? What's going on here is very important. He says, okay, but tell me what's going on here. He says, we're here since 9 o'clock in the morning. We're sitting here. Every bus that goes by, we count. And I'm telling you, 68 buses went by. She thinks she saw 69. He said, you're fighting about how many buses went by? He says, with, a, with, a, with like an innocent face, like, what else should old people do? So I said, run, says it on this week's parasha. He says, isn't that a klala? That at that point in your life, that's all you are? Somebody who sits on a porch and counts buses? He says, isn't that the biggest klala? Isn't the biggest bracha to be 95 years old, sitting in a base medrash and singing? He says it on this, this the dvat, he says this whole thing on the tape, on this week's parasha. He says, the biggest bracha is somebody who keeps the Torah and learns Torah. And the biggest klala, you're going to end up the end of your life sitting there counting buses. Not only counting buses, but calling people names because they missed the bus. They managed missed the bus. They all missed the bus. So this is this is this is what it's saying over here. I said this I said this by by the I said this young man, the Shmuel, he talking knows. He knows that Torah is the biggest bracha. That's why the Torah doesn't tell us if you keep the mitzvahs, that's what's gonna happen. No. If you keep the mitzvahs, you get, that's the bracha, that's the biggest bracha. And I can tell you, if you were ever close to any gedolim, or palm, any of these gedolim, they're the happiest people in the world. They are, they have the, my Rebbe, Rebbe Gamliel, they have the best marriages in the world. That's the bracha. And bracha is, if a person keeps the Torah, he really keeps it, lishma, the house is a bracha. And chatz the other way, they're fighting, they're counting buses, everything that could go wrong will go wrong. So that's what, that's this week's parasha. Okay. Anyway, um, Two more things, and well, two things that ha- that I want to that I want to talk about, and we'll close up. Um, so, one is the following. So, I, I, the last couple of weeks, I've been seeing a lot of kids, ki- 
Now this week already called and called. My kid got kicked out. They're not taking her back. You know, everyone's coming back from camp now. They'd rather not have her. I walked in. Okay, so I've seen a lot of different kids, a lot of different parents, and you really can't, kids that are, that are, that are off the derech or whatever, being making trouble, you can't really point your finger at, you know, every once in a while kids go off the derech. Every, every family and every situation is different. Sometimes it's abuse, it's not the kid's fault. Sometimes it's a dysfunctional home. Sometimes the home is great and something happened in school. Sometimes it's a learning disability. Sometimes it's low self-esteem. It can be a million different things. It can be a million different people's fault, whatever it is. It's very hard to put, you know, it's like Hashem, someone asks you, why do people get cancer? So everyone wants you to say, because you smoke. Oh, I don't smoke, I won't get it. You know, so why do kids go off to death? Because they were abused. Oh, my kid's not abused, I don't have to worry about it. No, there's no such real answer. There's no one answer. There is no one answer. There isn't. Okay, you have to have a lot of, you have to have all, you know, a lot of satisfaction. But I want to tell you something interesting that I wrote, I wrote this week. I started, I'm, I'm a writer. So now I got to start writing, right? So, what I wrote is as follows. I've met a lot of kids that are dysfunctional. They themselves are dysfunctional. For whatever reason, whether it's a learning disability or a certain mida or something that they went through, they are a dysfunctional child. But they happen to be in a functional house. In other words, the parents are great, the support system is great, the family is great, but the child itself is dysfunctional. So that child, you don't want to take out of its functional environment. Because that would be the worst thing you could do to it, right? It's dysfunctional. Then sometimes, and I've met many of these kids, they're really good kids. They're not dysfunctional kids. They're functional kids. Why are we having situations with them? Because they live in a dysfunctional home. So their environment is dysfunctional, but they're not dysfunctional. That kid, you have to get out of the environment. Because many parents are like, should I send my 14-year-old to a sleepaway, to a dormitory? Should I keep him, right? So it depends. Or my 18-year-old, should I send it to a dorm, to Israel? Right, it depends. If the house, if the kid is dysfunctional and the house is functional, uh-uh, you got to keep them. They need therapy, you got to keep them. But if the kid is functional, the house is dysfunctional, you can't leave them there. you got to get them out. So it's very different. You have to look at the house and you have to look at the situation and you have to look at the kid. I met a few girls this week that are in a lot of trouble, but not because of them. They're really good kids. Break it down, they're really good kids. They're just coming from such dysfunction. And as long as they're going to stay in that dysfunction, they're not going to be good kids. Now, why am I telling you this? Because after I wrote that down, I wrote a little letter to Hashem. And I said, Hashem, this is a very interesting point that I just came to. Because Klal Yisrael is not dysfunctional. The Jewish nation is extremely functional. So why do we have all the problems? Why do we have kids off the derech, kids on their phone on Shabbos? Why do we have that? Because our environment is dysfunctional. So therefore, if we're your child, and we're a functional child in a dysfunctional environment, you got to take us out of the dysfunctional environment. So you got to bring Mashiach. If we're dysfunctional, so you got to keep us in Gullus. But if we're functional and we're normal, and the reason that we do all these things is because we're in a dysfunctional home... You gotta take us out of this functional home, you gotta bring us, you gotta bring Mashiach. Okay, we'll see, I'll stick the letter in the Kaisa when I go to Israel. We'll see if that happens, but it's a very interesting point. Okay, and the last thing I wanna tell you is the following. So, my, my car lease is up. I need a new car. Right, I got about two weeks. So, I went car hunting. Now, I'm very into cars. I'm not into 
fancy the fancy crowd. I, I was always this is my Yitzhahara. Maybe I'll park it in that room, right? Um, I love sports. I love fast cars. I know cars, big engines. I like. I like to go from zero to sixty in four seconds. Now it's an interesting thing. That's fast for the girls that don't right. Your regular car go to zero to sixty in about nine seconds. A good fast car goes in four seconds. A Maserati sports car is like four seconds, three point eight seconds, right? Now, Rabbi, you, where are you going, right? You, you, your speedometer says one hundred eighty miles an hour. You're not going one hundred eighty miles on Ocean Parkway, and and where are you going? Where are you going? Zero to sixty three point two seconds. Sixty is too fast on any New York street. So, so what are you doing? So the guy asked me like, what, Rabbi, like, what are you doing? And I said, you see, you don't understand me. I'm never going to do 180 miles an hour. And I'm never going to do a 0 to 60 in 3.8 seconds. But I need to know that I could if I wanted to. That goes back to the hamster guy, right? So I want to know that I could. I'm never going to do it. I want to know that I could. You need to know that you could. Anyway, I want to get to a certain point. So, so there's this Jeep. And it's like a sports Jeep. And I like, it's got orange seats and a black exterior. And it's 500 horsepower. Forget about it. I'm talking to girls. The last night, my guys were like jumping out of their chairs, right? And so I went to see it. I'm like, maybe Walston getting out of a Jeep to give a share. I don't know. But you know what? Maybe I'll get a bigger following. Who knows? So, so I get into the Jeep to try it out. And the guy sits next to me, and he shows me all the buttons. You know, the computer on this Jeep. It's not a normal car. First of all, it has... That if you're driving and someone cuts you off, automatically, faster than the human eye, it jams on the brakes automatically, the computer. So faster than you can jam on the brakes to save yourself, the computer does it, which is much faster than you can do it, which is crazy. That's crazy. Someone cuts you off without you stepping on the brake. That's amazing, right? That's a beautiful, that's an unbelievable part of the car. But the car has many other things. It has it has a cruise control, right, that, that you don't have to ever step on the gas, and if someone goes in front of you, the car slows down, waits till it goes up, speeds up, the car drives itself. It totally drives itself. Listen to this. If you're getting tired and you and you and, the, and you go over the two yellow lines in the middle, it has a it has a, a, a thing that reads it. The minute your car your wheel goes onto that yellow line, it reads it and it will the, the, the wheel will turn you back. It'll turn you back. It won't swerve. Slowly and nice and softly. So if you're falling asleep, that happens too many times, there's an alarm that goes off that pretty much wakes you up, that you felt, and I'm sitting in this car, and I'm like, I don't got to do nothing. It parks itself. It has self-park, promise you. Well, there are other cars that do that. You pull it up, you pull it up to the car next to it, you pull, you push self-park, hands, feet off, everything, it turns the wheel, it pulls back, it measures, it has cameras, right? It measures everything. I'm like, this car just parked itself, right? So, I'm sitting in the car, and I'm like, and he's, and he's like, you, he looks at me and he goes, you pretty much don't have to do anything. This car totally drives itself, and, and you, you don't have to touch anything. You want to call somebody, with the, you just say, I want to call my wife, it dials your wife. You, you, it, it does it all. It does, you know, I don't have any of the other computer stuff. It's crazy. It's a, and it's a Jeep. It's a Jeep, right? Okay. So I'm sitting there, and he, you know, you know how I am. My head goes many different ways. And he's telling me all this, and it's very exciting. And I get out of the car, and I'm like, I don't think I'm going to get this car. Why not? Because I like to drive a car. I don't want the car to drive me. 
I want to drive the car. Guys drive shifts because they want to drive the car. They won't even drive an automatic. I drive an automatic. I got out of there and I said, I want to drive. I told them, I said, this car does too much. I like to drive a car. I don't want the car to drive me. I like to talk on a telephone. I own the telephone. My telephone doesn't own me. That's why people complain all the time. You don't answer. You don't call back. This doesn't own me. Many of us out there, it owns you. It doesn't own me. I own the phone. If I want to turn it off, I will turn it off. If I don't want to answer, I will not answer. You know why? Because I'm the master and this is the servant. Not, I'm the servant and this is the master. I'm very into that. So it's a little, that's why. I don't have an iPhone. With an iPhone, I'd be buying down to it. But it's not an iPhone. It's a little nothing phone. Okay, anyway, so that's what I tell the guy. He looks at me like, well, you know, this is high, you know, technology. And I'm like, you know, but... And I, I get into my car, and I'm ending the share with this. And I get into my car, and I don't know if I'm getting the Jeep or not, whatever. But I'm just, I just, just, I just want to tell you what, I get into my car, and I'm like, that's the problem, a question that's been asked to me many, many times, and this has to be printed. That's the problem with this generation. That is the problem with this generation and the difference between this generation and 50 years ago. I want to drive the car. I don't want the car to drive me. I want to live life. I don't want the life to live me. I don't want the world to, to control what I do. I want to control what, I, what the world does. And today, everything is done for you. You don't have to do anything for anyone. It's all done. Food is cooked for you. The microwave. Everything is done for you. You don't have to get up and do nothing. Even Nebuch television when I was a kid, I had to get up and change the channels. I know you can't imagine. There was no remote control. So they did very well because if you sat down and watched Channel 2, that was it. From 7 o'clock to 11 o'clock. You didn't get up. Who gets up to change the channel? So there were five channels. That was it. No remote? Today, they have televisions with five shows at one time and it can tape them all at one time and you can, it's like, you don't have to do anything. You can sit in your chair and order food. The television will serve you the food, right? You don't, you don't have to do anything anymore. So the, 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 the computers do everything for you. The cars do everything for you. Your parents do everything for you. So, so you're not living life. You're not living life. You're surrounded by all this stuff that's controlling your life. So, so everything's controlling your life instead of you controlling your life. So I got into my car and I said, that's the lesson. I don't want this car to drive me. I want to be the driver. If I want to turn the left, if I want to go a little bit on the yellow line, I want to go on the yellow line. Don't put me back in there, right? That's what we have to do. We have to take control. We have to live life. We have to live life according to the Torah. And what it's saying in this week's Pasha and Pasha's Re'eh is that if you live life, Re'eh Anoichi, me, look at me. That's a different shot. Re'eh Anoichi, look at me, Hashem says. Look at me, If you live life with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you live life with Hashem, then you're controlling your life. You're not letting everyone else control your life. You're a partner with Hashem, and you can do crazy stuff. You can do the most unbelievable things in the world. But if you're just going to sit there and let everyone do everything for you, in the end, it's an automatic life. You went through an automatic life. You didn't do anything. Nothing really happened. So that's the message i like to leave you. And my bracha to everyone is, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu should take us out of this dysfunctional gullus, and then he will see that Klai Yisrael is really a very functional child. Have a good week. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.